0: The message this morning comes from Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epiphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him
1: It was about 23 years ago, I imagine, 22 or 23 years ago, when I received a phone call from a concerned mom. She had discovered that her son, who had his uh, share of troubles, uh, he had gotten now into deep trouble. His deep trouble had taken him on a stealing spree through various counties, can't remember how many counties there were, but there were several of them, and this young man, along with another young man, had gone into homes in these counties, broken into those homes, and stolen valuable things. The family had plenty of money. He didn't need anything. It seemed that he did it for the sheer uh, excitement, the charge that he got out of breaking the law. And so as I was, his youth uh, pastor, she reached out to me and uh, she drove him up uh, on a Saturday, as I recall, uh, because I was trekking over to Tennessee that Saturday to meet with a college student at the University of Tennessee, and I thought uh, we could uh, make this ride uh, our, our talk time. And so sure enough, this young man and I headed out to Tennessee. he had spent the night before in jail. She had, as a good mother, let him sit there all night in a jail, thinking through what he had done. Uh, You see, what he had done is uh, once he discovered that they were on to him, He uh, dumped all of the things he stole into the river, so now he had stolen thousands of dollars worth of valuables like jewelry and things like that, and they were irretrievable. No one could get them, so it uh, made his crime uh, worse. As we drove to and from Tennessee that day and he hung out while I uh, met with another student, we talked about what he had done. How is it that he got to where he was? And, and as he ended up where he was, how is it that he, coming from a family, a good godly family, uh, a mother who loved Jesus, uh, how is it that he w- was where he was? And so that began a journey of this young man back to God. It wasn't an easy one. He went to court. His parents could have uh, leveraged some uh, significant um, uh, uh, clout. They refused to do so. They left him on his own. He had to secure his own attorney. He had to pay the bill himself. They let him deal. He was charged with multiple felons. I remember when I sat in court for the hearing of this, that, uh, that it all added up when the judge did that. His sentence, if it had been stacked on top of one another for everything he had done, was 112 years. Put it all together. This young man's grandfather was a judge in that court. His picture was in the room, in the courtroom. And that judge turned to that picture and called him out and said, what would your grandfather think if he saw you today? If he knew that his family line was doing this kind of thing, it was a sobering day. Would he recover from this? Is this too big for God? Can God take a young man like that and turn his life around? Well, that was 20-some years ago, and I, I it's so exciting to know that he is a deacon in his church today, married with three children who are growing up to know and serve the Lord. God got a hold of that young man, turned his life around, gave him a new lease on life thanks to some tough love from his parents. God used them in the process, and God is using that young man in incredible ways today as a dad and a husband and as a business person
0: uh,
1: we serve a God of second chances amen we serve a God who is not stumped by our sin and Paul writes to the Colossians and as he does he, uh, he tells them to do something and it is something that I'm afraid people like that young man are able to do more readily, or some folks who attend our church who have a record, uh, you're able to do this more readily than others of us who are on moral uh, high-standing ground. And the first uh, a command given to us by God through Paul is gratefully remember God's grace. When Paul begins his Thanksgiving prayer, he begins with the effect, its interest in, or the results, and works backward to the cause. And so, in order to understand it, it's almost like you need to flip it in order to get it. For example, he says, I am thanking God for your faith, love, and hope. All right, so I'm thanking God for your faith, love, and hope. We don't have time to get into those this, uh, this morning, but you may recall those occur in the same list in another place in Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians 13, different order. And he says, because of the gospel that you heard... All right, so he says, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, love for all the saints, verse five, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. You see, what the young man sitting in my car that day on that two hour drive to Knoxville and back needed to hear was truth. He needed truth as do we today, which has come to you is indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. That's the cause. All right, so the outcome is faith, love, and hope. The means is the gospel. The cause is the grace of God in truth. Since the day you heard it and understood it, what? the grace of God in truth. What is the grace of God in truth then? If that is the cause, if that is the driver behind all of life change and I'm convinced that it is as a gospel preacher I'm a bit biased but as someone who has experienced it I'm convinced that if any of us is going to change it will be because we hear and understand the grace of God in truth. What is it? I was listening to a Tim Keller sermon recently, sent it to Trent, who was listening to it. When he and I sat down to reflect on it, here's what we landed on. Our sin is so serious that it required the death of Jesus to take care of it. All right, so if you sit here and I sit here, the danger of good moral people, the danger of people who may have never done a laundry list of really awful things is that you have a tendency to rest on your high moral ground and somehow think that resting there, God must be lucky to have you in his family he must be thrilled because after all, you're educated. After all, you've never done this. You've never done that. You've never traveled down that road. But could I say to you this morning that if you come in here with all the moral laces in your shoes tied up and you're walking and strutting your stuff, that underneath that most likely lies pride, which is what motivated Adam and Eve to do the evil awful deed they did. So you are not in so good company and you're saying well Jerry thank you for making me feel so much better about myself we'll get to that we'll get to that Uh, the flip side of it then is that we are so valued that God was willing to give his son Jesus to take care of our sin all right so our sin demands an awful payment it demands an awful price But if that stops there, hope does not exist. And you see, hope is kind of the the high one in this list uh, from Colossians 1. Uh, Hope does not exist. But since God uh, valued you so much that he was willing to give his only son in exchange for you, then that is good news. Amen? This is the gospel. And when you live in light of the fact that you have an inheritance because the down payment on your life was the son of God, that's a good inheritance. If the down payment is the son of God, because of such a hope, our faith grows in anticipation of being physically one day in the presence of Jesus. One day we will see him. And so I think based on my study of scripture that when we see him there will still be scars i think those exist in heaven on the body of jesus And the reason I think that, and I don't have time to get into it, is because Thomas saw them post-resurrection. That's why. That's my thinking on it. And I think those scars still exist. And one day, when I put my eyes on him, and I see him face to face, and I see his nail-scarred hands, and I look at his uh, feet where those spikes were driven through, I just happen to think that the gold streets won't matter, that the pearly gates will not be that significant at that point everything in me will want to bow and worship the one who would give his life that I might have life amen I just think at that point everything changes everything falls off everything changes John Newton wrote the famous amazing grace hymn in 1722 it is estimated that this hymn is performed 10 million times a year 10 million times a year it has appeared on more than 11,000 albums. Judy Collins, who was a recording artist in between 70 and 72, her rendition of that song spent 67 weeks on the chart and peaked at number five. Aretha Franklin, Ray Charles, Johnny Cash, Willie Nelson, and Elvis are among the superstars to have recorded the song. Why? Why does amazing grace still today garner so much attention? Because the world is longing for grace. That's why. Because there is a hunger deep in your soul that you probably have tried to feel with all kinds of things that only the grace of God can feel. As a matter of fact, Newton's second verse to that song says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." You say, what is that? "Mm, You're a sinner, and so am I. Grace shows that to us. Grace shows us the deep sin of our hearts. It's called the conviction of the Spirit. And grace, he writes, my fear is relieved. The same grace that showed up to you and says you're a sinner it's the same grace that shows up to you and says Jesus died for that sin. Now, we live in a world that doesn't like that three-letter word, We don't want to call people sinners. We don't want to name our sin a sin. No, no, that's so not in vogue today. But for all the world who refuses to say the word and admit the sin, they will be void of the grace of God. There is no way to have grace without truth. Jesus came full of both. So I've summarized it like this. Because of Jesus' death on the cross, I cannot minimize my sin. It was that costly. And because of Jesus' death on the cross, I cannot minimize my value. I am worth that much to God. That's good news, amen? It was uh, last year that I was privileged to receive from my favorite radio preacher of all time, Chuck Swindoll. A whole box of his commentaries. Such a gift. A guy in our church, a dear friend, was on Swindoll's staff for many, many years, and he arranged that. And Swindoll signed everyone to me and put this phrase in every single Commentary. When I picked up the commentary on Colossians this week, it said in the front of it, just like every single one of those commentaries says, Preach grace. Preach grace. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. All right, this may sound a bit nuanced, but it isn't. Grace is learned, it's learned. You see, some of you sit here this morning, I love you as your pastor, but you don't yet get grace, nor does it get you. You say, how do I know? Because you point fingers way too much at other people whose sin is worse than yours. And as long as you're pointing fingers at other people with worse sins, it means you don't see your sin as bad as it is. And when you don't see your sin as bad as it is, you don't see God's grace as great as it is. And when you don't see God's grace as great as it is, you will not experience the love and the joy of walking with the Lord. As you could, and my prayer for you is that you get grace, and grace gets you. My prayer for you is that something begins to happen deep in your soul, where the fingers pointing to others somehow point back at you, and you, like John Newton, that former slave owner, can say, "Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." Grace. Again, John Newton said, although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. He was old when he said this I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. So gratefully, gratefully remember God's grace. This must become habitual. I would encourage you to pray every day through God's grace. I I, I think if you began the morning by saying, oh Lord, my sin, and oh Jesus, my Savior, it it would be an amazing place to begin. Secondly, unceasingly seek to know God's will. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. All right. So, what is God's will? This is going to be a deep dive. I've got to do it quickly. Uh, uh, by the way, a website—a um, website that you can go to and trust. Gotquestions.org. If you have questions of any part of faith, Gotquestions.org. Trustworthy. That's where I went just to get a simplified answer to this that was palatable in the room this morning. Uh, God's will, three areas, three uh, arenas, we might say, of God's will. God's sovereign will is revealed in his unchangeable decrees. God has a sovereign will, and there's nothing you and I will ever do to change it. Not a single solitary thing will you and I ever do to change God's sovereign will. God's revealed will is contained in his commands, we have the ability, not the right, to break those. So you've got God's sovereign will. That will be done with a period on the end. But there is a revealed will of God that, that, uh, that you and I respond to in his commands. We either do them or we don't. And then there's a third uh, a facet of God's will. His dispositional will is his attitude. You see, there's a difference between will and desire. Uh, We kind of don't know that in our existence today, but there is. At times, God decrees something that gives him no pleasure, such as the death of the wicked. You say, "I I just didn't know God worked that way. Well, raise kids and you'll know it. Why? Sometimes you need to spank their bottom, but you don't feel like it. That's your dispositional will at work. You're doing something you don't want to do, but you know you better do it because the outcome is going to be what it ought to be because you do it. Every one of us in the room who's lived long enough has done something like that before. I think Paul is praying here that they'll know God's revealed will. So I want to include just a little, I've included this chart before on the screen, circle of influence, circle of concern. This comes from uh, Steve Covey, and uh, he uses it to talk about another thing, which is very, very good. Uh, What is our circle of influence? It's the space in our life that we have some sense of, of, of control, might be a strong word, we at least can affect. All of us has that, every single one of us. All right? But then there's a circle of concern. That's the space in life where, nah, we don't have much control. For example, when the war broke out in Ukraine, it broke my heart. But there's nothing I can do about it. Like, I I don't know Putin well enough to tell him to quit. Right? I, I don't know people. I don't, there's nothing I can do. I could sit and worry about it all day, but I'm going to live in my circle of concern. So, so I, I asked myself, what can we do? What can we do? What can we do? And then all of a sudden I realized that people are fleeing the country. There's a way for us as a church to give money, to get food to those people. And that's what we did. Uh, just land in a circle of influence. All right, so, so here this is going to stump on some toes. Let's do it quickly. Get the pain over with. Most of us like to live in the grandiose, unknown, circle of concern, sovereign will of God and talk in great platitudes at times about God's work and God's ways when he's telling you to love your wife and quit yelling at her and you won't. Ouch. That's kind of how we tend to roll, isn't it? We can think on these high and lofty things when when God is saying, if you would seek to know my will in the spaces in your life over which you have influence, if you will live in that space of influence and seek to know me, I've got a word for you uh, for today. And I've got a word for you for tomorrow. And if you'll seek to live in that area of of life, if you will do that, guess what? You will get to know more of his sovereign will. As a matter of fact, the circle of influence will grow more into the sovereign will. Why? If you're faithful with a what? A few things, with little things, with small things, with whatever is in front of you. Most of us somehow miss that, don't we? We miss that. So we miss the, the day-to-day details, and we like to live in the grand uh, arenas of life. And, uh, yeah, those things are good to talk about. But if, if our talk and walk aren't where they need to be, that's not very fruitful. And that gets to the third, which is a result. So you can walk worthy. So we need to remember God's grace. Never, ever, ever let his grace go. Remind ourselves repeatedly of his grace. Unceasingly seek to know his will. In this space over which I have influence. Why? So you can walk worthy. Look at this. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of, of God. Uh, Here it is, just really, uh, just a one-liner. If you're worth Jesus' life, then your life is worth living for Jesus. All right, let me say that again. If you're worth Jesus' life, then your life is worth living for Jesus. It is. Well, I guess we could just go home right now, couldn't we? And, And that's one of those things that, like pinto beans, they're better day two. We just let that sit, simmer a bit. It might taste better tomorrow. If you're worth Jesus' life, then your life is worth living for Jesus. So what is a fully pleasing life? There, there are four words to describe it. Bearing fruit. Bearing fruit. using your gifts to do God's work. Using your gifts to do God's work. So so that means no spectators. If you belong to this church, use your your gifts to do God's work. Uh, Secondly, increasing in the knowledge of God. Not trending on Facebook and Instagram, Twitter. Right? Unless that helps you increase in the knowledge of God. Definitely not increasing in cultural knowledge. Oh, yeah, it matters, but it is isn't ultimate. Paul says in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell richly. Dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. All right? Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We've just done that, haven't we? That's why you need to be here and worship. Strengthen with all power. God's got all the power you need to face all you're facing. He's got everything you need. Strengthen with all power. You know if you quit, it's never because God quit, because you have an unlimited supply of power. If you run out of gas, I know that's a sore subject these days, but if you run out of gas, it's because you didn't stop and put it in the tank. And if you run out of gas spiritually, it's not God's fault. It's ours, isn't it? And then finally, giving thanks to the Father. So if we put that list again together, bearing fruit, increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all the power, and giving thanks, that is a fully pleasing life. That's it. We say, well, Jerry, I just thought it was more complicated than that. that that's the devil's work to make us think that. It isn't. And then Paul ends this prayer who has qualified you talking of God to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Wow. He, He ends where he begins, doesn't he? The gracious God has qualified you. We all were born disqualified, and when Jesus died on the cross, he qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins.